You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, my name is John Horgan. I'm a science journalist. I teach at the Stevens Institute of Technology. And um, for, I guess, a couple of years now, I have been uh, hosting this podcast uh, on uh, my on Meaning of Life TV uh, called Mind Body Problems. That's also the name of a, of a book I wrote and posted online. Um, and uh, it's about uh, what I think is the deepest mystery in existence, the deepest mystery uh, for philosophers, for scientists, for any sentient creature. Um, I, I define the mind body problem broadly as the question of what we really are. Uh, and I think that touches on moral, uh, ethical questions, like what should we be? And technological questions, what can we be? And anyway, with me today is a uh, another mind-body obsessive, a philosopher Philip Goff. Uh, and uh, the, the reason we're talking today, Philip, is that um, you wrote a book that came out Last fall, I'm holding it up right now, uh, Galileo's Error, uh, which is a defense of, well, I'll let you tell us what it's about. And we've been sort of, I don't know, sparring is maybe too dramatic. We've been exchanging um, opinions on Twitter primarily. And I thought, uh, it, you know, Twitter just can't do justice for, the, uh, for this topic. And I thought that uh, we should have a proper conversation here on mind-body problems. So first of all, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. It's, it's good to be able to do this. It's good to talk, as you say, rather than send little tweets back and forward. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'd like to get a little background, even before getting to your book. Um, why philosophy? How did you end up as a philosopher? I guess I've always been obsessed with philosophy as far back as I can remember, actually. Actually, my parents told me when I was four, I asked, why are we here? <laughs> but however, having said that, we had recently moved house, so I'm not sure whether I was just confused about the location. <laughs> but I also remember, actually, I was, I was raised Catholic, and I was always really interested in cosmology and, you know, black holes and stuff. And I remember I asked, I asked the priest, what happened to Adam and Eve when it was the Big Bang? So, you know, like tr- trying to hook, I was, you know, they connect everything together, you know. And um, so I guess in, specifically I'm kind of interested in in that spirit of trying to connect things together, phenomena that are hard to fit into our standard scientific story, you know, things like free will. How do we reconcile free will with the physical story of the universe or facts about value, facts about right and wrong, uh, abstract objects like numbers. How do these timeless objects fit in with the observable world of space and time. So there are all these kind of troubling phenomena, but I think consciousness is perhaps the most interesting because it's, it's sort of the one that's hardest to deny. I think, you know, with all these other phenomena, it's at least an option to say, you know, maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe we're not really free in the way we think we are. Maybe there aren't really facts about right and wrong, but it's really hard to say, uh, you know, maybe no one's ever felt pain or no one's ever seen. So it's, so it's, it's something that's so hard to deny. And yet it's so hard to fit into our standard 
picture things. So that's what I'm interested in. But it's not because I like I like trouble. I, you know, I want everything to fit together. I really want everything to fit together. And um, so that's kind of my been my obsession. You know, you know, forever. I think. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Well, we share we share that kind of background, I'd say, and maybe Catholicism has something to do with it. Oh, this yeah. is what I was just saying before about interruptions. <laughs> I'm just going to unplug my phone. Hold on a second. No problem. Um, so, yeah, I stopped being a Catholic when I was pretty young, but I think I'm still a Catholic in the sense that I care about these ridiculously big questions such as where did we come from? What, how, are you, how did you put it? Why are we here? Yeah, apparently that's what my parents had asked. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why the are basic we here? philosophical question, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And what's the reason for us being here? And, yeah. um, and as you say, I think of all the mysteries, um, the, the question of ourselves and our consciousness, yeah. our minds, our ability to wonder about the world, that's the biggest mystery of all. So you seem to think you have an answer for the mind-body problem, which you present in your book. So can you tell us a little bit about how you how this book came about and why you decided to write about it, to write it? Yeah, well, answer might be too strong. Yeah, I suppose there's an, I think everyone should be tentative somewhat at this stage of the science of consciousness. We're not even sure whether we're thinking about the problem in the right way. But I suppose I do have an answer that seems to me at this stage more promising than others. Um, I mean, yeah, if you just want more background, I suppose when I studied philosophy as an undergraduate uh, in the dying embers of the 20th century, we were taught that the only two answers on consciousness were, you know, on the one hand, materialism, roughly you can account for it in terms of the chemistry of the brain, the sort of conventional scientific approach. And on the other hand, dualism, that it's consciousness is non-physical outside of the physical workings of the body and the brain. And um, at first I wanted to be a materialist. I thought, you know, there's a scientifically credible option. and uh, But I came to think that just irreconcilable tensions in a, in a materialistic approach to consciousness. So I think after that, for, I was sort of a closet dualist. I sort of saw the problems of the position. I was maybe a bit embarrassed about it. Maybe In a way, I probably wouldn't be so much now, I think. Uh, but I was maybe associating it with a sort of religious position or something, which I don't think is necessarily connected. But um, I actually finished my undergraduate degree thinking um, I wrote my thesis arguing the problem was irresolvable. And I just went off and tried to think about something else. And But then I just inadvertently, you know, I, I, after I'd left university, just discovered this third option, which whose name we haven't mentioned yet, I guess, panpsychism, which sounds kind of, I guess we'll talk about, sounds kind of wacky, but seems to me to avoid the deep difficulties, which I think plague the two more conventional options so my, i think my attraction to it is almost a process of elimination that, that um you know i just think the other conventional options have these deep difficulties that panpsychism avoids so sometimes i use i didn't use this in the book someone said it was cringy and so i didn't use it and um and now i wish i had done actually the sherlock holmes line once you've ruled out the impossible what remains no matter how improbable must be the truth i think i think that's kind of how i feel about panpsychism i just think 
the other two probably aren't almost certainly aren't right. Um, I like well, that. Oh. I think that Sherlock uh, Holmes quote is um, appropriate for the realm of uh, consciousness uh, science. It reminds me of uh, this term crazyism, which was coined by uh, by uh, an American philosopher, Eric Schwitzgabel. Uh, oh yeah. He, and, I've been chatting and, with him on email recently. Yeah. Um, and he, he says that, uh, he thinks that, um, it's likely that whatever the explanation explanation for consciousness is, it will strike us as crazy. Yeah. Um, because consciousness itself is, is kind of, is so profoundly, uh, mysterious, but, why don't you tell us? I'm curious about how you define panpsychism. So, can you, what, what's your kind of uh, morning TV talk show version of uh, panpsychism? Yeah, well, the, I guess the basic idea. I mean, I suppose the con- to contrast it with us in our standard way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms, and so consciousness exists only in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history, cosmically speaking. But for the panpsychist, in contrast, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. So it doesn't, I always want to emphasize, it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious, mm-hmm. in contrast to the etymology, pan meaning everything, psyche, mind. The, the basic idea is that the basic building blocks of reality may be electrons and quarks and fundamental particles, although there are other interpretations we could talk about. Uh, have, so if we're just thinking in terms of particles, the basic particles have unimaginably simple forms of experience and the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from the experience of its most basic parts. So it doesn't mean this table is conscious. It just perhaps means it's made up of little things that are conscious in some very, very simple way. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a pretty radical view. How who supposedly first proposed this idea? Well, historically, I mean, it, it goes back to the to the dawn of philosophy. I guess we've got. I mean, certainly in Eastern philosophy, a lot of Buddhist thought, Buddhist thought in Western philosophy. You've got you know uh, Spinoza, Leibniz. More recently, Alfred North Whitehead. Um, but I mean, where I draw my inspiration from, and I think actually. Why there's been, in my br- relatively short philosophical career, uh, not not just because of me, not uh, for a number of because of a number of people, a rediscovery of a resurgence of interest in panpsychism, is because of the rediscovery of certain important work from the 1920s by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington, who was the first scientist to confirm Einstein's theory of general relativity in between the world wars. Uh, also, also Alfred North Whitehead. I think there was close interaction here. People always tell me off for not mentioning Whitehead enough. Uh, but they, they, you know, I'm inclined to think, as I've said lots of times, that these guys did in the 1920s for the science of consciousness what Darwin did in the 19th century for the science of life. And it's a sort of tragedy of history. It got forgotten about for so long, but it's recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy. It's causing a lot of excitement. There's been a lot of publications, a lot of Oxford University Press volumes. Uh, and why I wrote this, you know, but everything's so specialized. So probably no one outside of 
it's dripping out a little bit, but probably not many people outside of academia have heard of this. So I wrote this book to try and get these ideas out to a broader audience. So it's, it's the specific kind of panpsychism, I think, uh, which might differ from more historical spiritual variants that, that I think is particularly attractive. Uh, so here's, here's, uh, a little bit of confusion that I've had. I've heard um, Bertrand Russell and some of the other people you mentioned, I think Whitehead also, uh, described as idealists. All right, let me explain what I, I, I mean by that. So the, the big positions when it comes to philosophies of mind that I'm aware of are materialism, which we've just discussed. That would be the dominant view, certainly over the last uh, century or two, which says that reality consists entirely of matter, which has certain properties, one of which would be uh, consciousness, which is a property associated with certain kinds of living uh, things. Then there's dualism, which you also mentioned, which says that, no, there are two fundamental properties kinds of stuff in the world, matter and mind, which are related somehow we don't really know. And Descartes is associated with that. Uh, and then uh, there's idealism, which is which says that uh, mind or spirit or soul or however you want to describe it um, is the, the, the foundation of of uh, reality, and this would be associated with certain um, Eastern traditions as well as certain strands of Western thought. So what's the difference between panpsychism and idealism, as I've been describing? That's a very good question, and um, it may be be determined by how you define these terms, but... um, what one, perhaps the most common way of understanding idealism is that the, that the physical world is not fundamental. It's grounded in something mental or spiritual that's at a deeper level. So if you think about George Barclay, the uh, 18th century bishop and proponent of idealism, he thought that um, – he said he believed in the physical world. He's often misunderstood. He didn't think the physical world was an illusion, but he thought – Tables and chairs and rocks and planets are sort of collections of ideas. And all that exists at the fundamental level are minds, uh, human minds. And I don't know what you thought about animals. I keep thinking this actually. But anyway, human minds and the mind of God. And so the physical world is real, but it's, it's grounded in facts about minds. Donald Hoffman is a very interesting, he doesn't tend to use the word idealism, but I think he fits the bill of an idealist that he thinks there's a more more fundamental story than physics. There is um, a story about what he calls conscious agents, networks of conscious agents, and he wants it to be a scientific story. But it's so it's that's the general way we think of idealism that there's something more fundamental than the physical world. Whereas, as I think of panpsychism, um, they want to kind of have their cake and eat it. They want to say the physical world is fundamental, and consciousness is fundamental. Right. And both are the only fundamental thing. So that sounds like a kind of contradiction. Um, but the idea is, um, I mean, it, so, so it's not that there's a common misunderstanding. People, when they think of panpsychism, they often think of it in sort of dualist terms. They think, you know, you've got these little particles and they have all their physical properties like mass, spin and charge. And then they have these consciousness properties as well. 
But that's not the kind of panpsychism, at least as I defend it. The idea is that mass spin and charge are forms of consciousness, that basic physical properties are forms of consciousness. So in, in a way, you could think of it as a kind of idealism, because at the fundamental level, there is just consciousness. But it's not standard idealism, because we also want to say at the fundamental level, there is physical stuff. It's a sort of identity. It's saying physical stuff turns out to be consciousness stuff. And that sounds paradoxical at first. And I think that the Russell Eddington had the insight here that I could maybe explain a bit to, to get rid of that par- potential paradox. But, but yeah, that's maybe the difference to idealism. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to point out uh, a kind of paradox or irony in current discussions about the mind body problem. As, as you, uh, as you said, at the beginning of our conversation, there's all this interest now in panpsychism, which just going back maybe 20 years uh, would have been considered to be a ridiculous fringe kind of new agey uh, position. But there's some very serious people now who are behind panpsychism, including yourself, or who take it seriously, at least. Uh, Dave Chalmers, uh, Christoph Koch, um, and some others. At the same time, you still have some of these old guard materialists who are even suggesting that consciousness somehow isn't real. The, you know, the consciousness is an illusion uh, position. Uh, it, it fascinates me that you've got these two, I'd see them as completely antithetical uh, positions that are being argued for very vigorously right now. So, so this is what is sometimes called eliminative materialism. It's associated with, uh, with Daniel Dennett. Um, and, uh, I think Patricia Churchland, it's fair to say is an eliminative materialist. So could you just, what, yeah. what's wrong with that position? How do you deal with the eliminative materialists? Actually, just, just on the Churchlands, just, I mean, I think they were actually, um, famous for exploring in the 80s Patricia and Paul Churchland the, the view that um, mental states like beliefs and desires might not exist as opposed to eliminativism about consciousness which is taken to be feelings and experiences and uh, complicated question about the relationships between those two things but anyway maybe that's just dull taxonomy but yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's maybe this is part of what you're saying, crazyism. The, the, the solution has to strike us as crazy. But, um, yeah, you know, look, I mean, I, I sometimes upset my anti-materialist friends by saying, you know, we should explore these positions. We should take them all seriously. I'm very good friends with Keith Frankish, who is a lovely guy who doesn't believe in consciousness, at least as many of us use that term. Uh, but I suppose, I mean... I, 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 I kind of, I think we're going through a phase of history. Human beings always think they're at the end of history. I'm inclined to think actually we're going through a phase of history where we are so blown away by the success of physical science, you know, and the unbelievable technology it's produced that just has this visceral impact on you, that that leads so many people to think this is it. You know, this is the truth. You know, we don't have all the answers yet, but we know the way to get them. And, and that, you know, that gets into people's identity and gives you a nice sense of security. You know, people talk about religion as a crutch, but I think a certain kind of scientism can be a, a crutch for people. But uh, 
my well, and I think this leads to to people like Keith Frankish and maybe Dennett in a, in a sense, who might agree with me that it's clearer with Keith. I think Dennett's a little bit slippery. Uh, you know, think that consciousness can't be explained in convention in terms of physical science, and it, that's the that's the complete truth. Then it 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 doesn't exist. But you see, my different spin on the uh, on on the on the on the history here. I my view is physical science has been so successful precisely because it was focused, and Galileo is pretty explicit about this, on a very narrow, focused task, uh, roughly constructing mathematical models to predict the behavior of matter. And it was designed to exclude consciousness. And again, Galileo is very explicit about this. So, you know, I think if Galileo were to time travel to the present day and hear about this difficulty of explaining consciousness in physical science terms he'd say of course you can't do that i designed physical science i set the whole thing up by taking consciousness out of the picture uh so yeah so so uh, I, I think it's in my view an over enthusiasm uh, understandable about how how successful physical science has been but i think it's been so successful precisely because it was focused on a, on a quite narrow specific task one that wasn't designed to deal with consciousness i mean i could expand on that but well yeah. i'm glad you explained your your title galileo's era yeah. which would be my understanding of it and uh, i just finished reading your book last night oh thank you uh, so it's, really it's pretty fresh in my mind but let me say what i what i think galileo's error was and you can correct me if i i'm in error um it's that um Science, if we're going to figure out how the world works, we have to focus on what can be measured and quantified and expressed in mathematical terms. And that includes the physical realm of uh, objects that are acted upon by forces and, and, uh, and that, and physical, uh, phenomena that change through time, which can also be measured and so forth. And that Galileo, uh, excluded mental states which cannot be measured in the same way that physical phenomena can be. And uh, the error is that Galileo therefore thought uh, that consciousness is not amenable to scientific investigation and therefore he excluded consciousness from science in a way that has led to some of the um, messiness of our current discussions about consciousness is, is yeah that's about right so i guess you know he galileo was the first person who you know, wanted science to be mathematical you know purely mathematical um but the trouble was well actually before you know before galileo people thought the world was full of these qualities you know there were colors on the surfaces of objects smells floating through the air tastes inside food and as Galileo understood quite well you know I think you can't capture these kind of qualities in the purely quantitative language of mathematics you can't capture in an equation the redness of a red experience or the spiciness of paprika so Galileo said he he was a great philosopher he proposed a revolutionary philosophical theory where all those qualities are not in the physical world they are in the consciousness of the observer. So if you're looking at a red tomato, the redness isn't on the surface of the tomato. It's, it's in the consciousness of the person looking at it. Uh, so he strips the world of the quality, says kind of they're in the soul outside of the domain of science. 
And then everything else we can capture in mathematical geometry. Uh, so that's the start of mathematical physics. But the whole project was, was never intended to be a complete description of reality. The, the whole project was premised on this division of nature into two domains, the quantitative domain of science that we can capture in mathematics, things like size, shape, location, motion, as Galileo saw it, and the qualitative domain of consciousness, colors, sounds, smells, tastes in the human consciousness that are outside the domain of science. Uh, so it's all premised on this division. And I think that is, you know, the philosophy that shaped science. Philosophers call it, the, it later became called primary and secondary qualities through John Locke and early scientists. And that was the philosophy. And I think, um, you know, if we, if we now want science to be part of consciousness, we need to find a way of bringing those two domains back together, like the qualitative domain of consciousness and the, the quantitative domain of physical science. And that's really what I think panpsychism allows us to do. So, so let me um, bring up a sort of an interesting twist in some of the recent discussions of, of uh, panpsychism and the mind-body problem. As you know, Christoph Koch, the, the prominent neuroscientist, has proposed bringing consciousness into the realm of what can be measured and quantified with what he calls a consciousness meter, which is a device that you can aim at different things and it, and it will give you, um, it will measure the degree of consciousness in that thing. You can do it with uh, biological organisms. Uh, you can pointed at humans to determine whether they are in a total coma and unconscious or actually they're conscious. They just can't express themselves because they're, they're totally paralyzed or, or something like that. Uh, and Koch's uh, proposal is based on this theory called integrated information theory, which is a very uh, popular uh theory with panpsychist implications that was proposed originally by um, Tononi, uh, also uh, Giulio Tononi, also a neuroscientist. So let me just ask you, do you think a consciousness, if there is a consciousness meter, whether the one proposed by, by Koch or something else that we invent in the future, do you think such a device is possible? Let me just ask you that at first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I'm very interested in intuitive information theory. And um, recently, Christoph Koch and I reviewed each other's books. Actually, we both wrote books in 2019. And um, I might put a blog post on. We had some follow-up email after. We were sort of, you know, politely criticizing each other to, to a certain extent. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm, complete, I'm completely on board with, with the neuroscientific project of... Um, trying to map the correlation the, the new what's called the neural correlates of consciousness and iit is one one interesting proposal to that another one is the global workspace theory and the hope is if we can get a such a complete theory then yeah sure we could we could build a consciousness meter but in my view that's we've got to think about what neuroscience can do and what it can't do i think what neuroscience is able to do is to build correlations you can scan someone's brain and you can ask them what they're experiencing. You can't observe their consciousness. You can ask them what they're experiencing and you can discover correlations that certain kinds of brain activity are correlated, always go together with certain types of mental experience. And you can get more systematic as IIT and 
the global workspace theory try to do. But that's crucial data that any theory of consciousness has to respect. But that is not in itself a theory of consciousness because what we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of those correlations. Why is it that certain kinds of brain activity come along with certain kinds of conscious experience? Why should that be the case? And I don't think you can answer that question just by doing more neuroscience because you'll just get more correlations. I mean, ultimately, I think this is to do with the fact that consciousness is not publicly observable, which is an, another way into the idea that this is just this is not just another scientific problem. This is radically different to any other scientific phenomenon. So, so actually, I mean, people have this idea that neuroscience supports materialism, but neuroscience is just neutral on all these views. Neuroscience gives us correlations, and then the, the, the materialist has one explanation, the panpsychist another, the dualist another, the idealist. And I, so I think there are limits because consciousness is not publicly observable. There are limits on our capacity to investigate it experimentally. All we can do is map these correlations and then we have to turn to these philosophical theories to try and work out what is the best explanation of those correlations the neuroscience finds. So that's how I see it. it's a division of labor, both very important, the experimental aspect but also the theoretical, if you like, philosophical aspect. I hope one day we can call it scientific. My The subtitle of my book is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. I think, you know, at the moment, this is the realm of philosophy because the rules aren't clear. I hope one day it solidifies into a theoretical element of science, but it will involve sort of rethinking how we understand science. All right. So I, I think let me let me start pushing back against you a little bit. I mean, this is sort of one of the reasons I wanted to talk you and I, I'm sure you expected this. But I'm going to start with this idea of a consciousness meter. I don't think it is possible. All right. Uh, I think it's possible that you might have a device that can make reasonable inferences about humans as to whether they're conscious or not, based on sort of the totality of our evidence of what's going on in a brain when a person is doing certain things. All right. Uh, but the further our, the more you get into exotic states of human mental activity or the lack thereof, and the further that you get away from humans into uh, mammals and then invertebrates, um, let alone non-biological things, which is what panpsychism says might have some kind of rudimentary conscious experience. The further you get away from us, uh, the more impossible it is to know what's going on. This is what sometimes called the problem of other minds. I like to call it the solipsism problem. I mean, for all any individual person knows, he or she is the only conscious entity in existence, right? You certainly look like you're conscious. I assume you are, but I can't know for sure. As you said, we don't have access to each other's consciousness. I think that this is an absolute impediment to a truly scientific theory of consciousness now and always. And that, so I think that consciousness will always remain in the realm of philosophical speculation um, as it has in the past and that that will continue in the future. So that would be my, my first uh, pushback. I don't think, uh, panpsychism or any other theory of consciousness, because what we want from a theory of consciousness is not just to explain 
consciousness in humans. We want to explain consciousness as a general property of certain kinds of thing, things in the world. And to me, the solipsism problem, the problem of other minds is an absolute obstacle mm. to that kind of understanding. Yeah, that's very interesting. And so, so I mean, I, as I just said, you know, I think there are these, there's the experimental aspect of consciousness science and the theoretical aspect, which is perhaps philosophy, but, you know, I hope will be one day seen as science. Um, so it seems like you're, if I'm understanding you rightly, you're um, drawing, up, drawing attention to problems with the experimental side. Uh, you know, how can we ever, and, and, you know, I certainly think there are deep difficulties here because consciousness is not publicly observable. As you say, all, all we really have access to is our own consciousness. Even in the human case, there are actually deep difficulties. There's a really, a really interesting debate at the moment that I don't know which side I'm on, sort of philosophical stroke neuroscience debate between, uh, you know, in cases like, for example, change blindness, like we now know that we, uh, we're not cognitively aware of anywhere near as much uh, in our visual field of experience than we think we are, right? Because, because of cases of change blindness. And, you know, there's, we think there's all this detail in our visual field, but actually we're not, in some sense, not really aware of, of anywhere near that much. You know, these experiments where you, you get a gorilla to run across and people don't notice it. And, and you know, what do we say about that? So someone like Ned Block says, well, there is the experience there, very detailed, but our sort of high-level cognitive faculties don't pick up enough of it, very much of it. Whereas people like Hakwan Lau and Richard Brown say, uh, "No, there isn't the experience there because you know there's only experience there when we're sort of aware of it." And you know, how, how the hell do we resolve that debate? It's it's very difficult. So there are very deep difficulties, and I agree, especially um, when you get you know when you get it outside of human human animals, but especially when you get in the inanimate realm. I mean, how the hell do you you know, you know, IIT claims, makes claims about that. But yeah, I'm also skeptical. IIT, it's important to say, is partly based on philosophical justifications. It's not purely based on experimental. But yeah, I'm not a panpsychist because I think it's experimentally proven. Mm-hmm. I'm, well, I'm not a panpsychist. I mean, I say I think it's the most promising view. I, I'm a panpsychist because of the theoretical aspect. So, so yeah, so, so we can draw up, I, I think maybe you agree we can draw up some correlations, right? We, we might disagree about how limited they are. Um, but then we have the question, well, what's, what's the best philosophical, if you like, explanation of why human consciousness exists, of, 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 the, of why those correlations obtain? And I think panpsychism is the best explanation of that. So, so that's why I'm a panpsychist. It's not that I think we can, you know, you, you can't, you can't look inside a quark to see whether it's conscious. Just, you can't look inside a brain to see whether it's conscious. Consciousness is not publicly observable. So unfortunately, you, you just can't settle these matters with experiments. Uh, and you know, that's why it makes people nervous. That's why for much of the 20th century, it was taboo to even talk about consciousness in a scientific context. But I think we either pretend it doesn't exist or we gather that we just try and work out the best account of how consciousness fits into the rest of reality. And I think panpsychism is the best account there. So, so it's a, it's a, you might think of it as sort of inference to the best explanation. Um, that's how I think about it. What, what do you think? So let me, let me, uh, let me just give you another uh, argument that I think you, I think we exchanged 
tweets on on uh, on this. Um, I've coined this term neo geocentrism. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. To uh, describe certain theories that I think are, in a sense, revi- reviving the old idea that we are the center of the universe, that the uh, that the Earth is the center of everything, and the Sun and other planets and the whole universe revolves around us. And I see panpsychism and uh, idealism of the kind that uh, that uh, Donald Hoffman and uh, Bernardo Kastrup have uh, advocated, and there are other theories also that sort of give mind more importance and matter less less important. I see these as kind of a return to what I to what I would describe as a very narcissistic, uh, anthropomorphic concept of reality that, that, you know, when it comes to religion, uh, would say that we're the reason that anything exists. God created us for some kind of drama to play out. We're the, you know, we're the chief protagonists of this drama, but there are now non-religious secular versions of this. And, and, I, I disparage neo-geocentrism because I think uh, that one of the great triumphs of human thought and of science, of the Enlightenment, uh, the age of reason and all that stuff, was to help us transcend our natural, our innate narcissism and uh, sort of step back and see reality, I would say, pretty objectively. Um, and put ourselves in our place. Uh, so, you know, astronomy and physics have done this. Certainly biology did it with uh, the theory of evolution, which says that we're just one of many species. We haven't even existed that long. Um, and I see panpsychism as kind of a return to this medieval superstitious way of thinking. So what, what's yeah. your to that? I'd say, I'd just give two replies to that. So so firstly, just I mean it's I I, I see it completely the opposite. As I think Hedda Hassel Merck said very well in, in a really good interview you did with her, and um, I had a public discussion um, uh, with Philip Pullman who, who put it very nicely. That I mean I just see it as the as the opposite of uh, geo. What is it? Geocentrism. Neo geocentrism. Neo neo geocentrism. Yeah, I knew I was missing another because you know. It's not in a materialist worldview. You know, there's something very, especially in a dualist view, but also in a materialist view. In a sense, there's something very special and unique about human beings that we are the only conscious things, or maybe us and some other animals, and something incredibly special only on this planet do we have this special glow. But um, you know, for a panpsychist, this is this is just a highly evolved form of, of what you find in nature more generally. And of course, you know, it's always important, it's very common misunderstanding. We're not saying electrons are conscious in the way human beings are conscious. They're not sitting there having existential angst. They just have, you know, unimaginably simple forms of experience. So what human beings have, they're just continuous with nature. They have a very highly evolved form of something that exists in, in the whole of the universe. But, you know, at a deeper level, is this the way we should be thinking about, I think this is, was my response to your Twitter, if I remember right. Is this the way we should be thinking about scientific questions? You know, it's, it's, it seems too much like you're, a matter of what your sentiment of what you, you know, 
surely we should just look at the evidence. We should just look at the arguments. And, and I, I think, you know, and people are dragged down because of the cultural connotations of panpsychism. There's this sort of new age spiritually feel. And, um, but you know, at the end of the day, you should judge a view not by its cultural associations or a priori views about how we think reality ought to be. We should judge it on, you know, the, the explanatory power. And I think it's, it, it gives the, 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 the least, I mean, I, so I think, I mean, let me just say a little bit more about how I, how I see of this theoretical enterprise. So I think there are pretty, there are two constraints governing it fundamentally. First constraint is to fit the experimental data that we get from neuroscience and there are difficulties establishing that data. Um, but you know, that's, that's what, and, and I think dualism has problem with that constraint with giving an experimentally and empirically plausible view. But also the other constraint I think is, is to minimize, ideally eliminate explanatory gaps, parts of the theory where you go from X to Y with, with no intelligible explanation of how that happens. You have a little miracle. And that's the big problem with materialism is they, you know, they, they have to somehow go from the purely quantitative properties of neuroscience to the qualitative reality of consciousness and no one's made even the slightest progress you know in my view as broadly held on bridging that expansion gap whereas panpsychism i think potentially uh you know there there are worries there are worries i'm not going to say it's just a a magic bullet is that the the phrase it's not going to you know there there are worries on both these scores but i think it looks possible to have a theory that gives a totally intelligible account of the emergence of human consciousness no expansion gaps and is perfectly fitting with the empirical data and you know that's why i like it screw the cultural connotations or you know <laughs> yeah it's, right. it's funny that i've you know i've proposed this idea that that panpsychism and idealism and theories of that ilk buddhism i'll throw you know that sort of uh quasi-scientific Eastern forms of mysticism that, uh, you know, I say they're, they're narcissistic. Um, and, uh, and yet other people say, no, it's narcissistic to think that we are uniquely conscious. And it's, it's yeah. not, it's the, it's the opposite of narcissism to say that consciousness pervades the universe. Okay. I, I get that. Let me, so let me bring up another one of my, uh, one of the objections I I've uh, raised. Um, it seems to me that with materialism, you have this, and and I would say this is a view from common sense. You, you you know you have the Big Bang. We've created this narrative of the universe. You start with the Big Bang, this the creation of uh, physical reality, and then around this one nondescript star system, you get this one little chunk of dirt. Uh, that for some reason that we don't understand evolved this very peculiar kind of matter that has certain properties. It, it replicates, it mutates, it evolves, and eventually it gave rise to this especially peculiar um, form of matter, which is us, that can sit here and debating our own nature and, uh, and origins. And so if you accept this view, which I think is – it's just absolutely a common sense view of, of how the universe works. You're left with the question of at what point, first of all, how did life begin? How did life begin on earth? Which is still a profound mystery. And then how, and at, at what point did life be, uh, develop this 
strange property that we call consciousness. And I'll even throw free will into the mix now. These are enormous questions. I think they are totally unanswered. I agree with you and with people like Thomas Nagel, who's also written a lot about this, that uh, the materialist worldview, paradigm, whatever you want to call it, framework, um, hasn't really explained life, let alone consciousness. But I see consciousness as a kind of mystery within the enigma of life. And I, and I see panpsychism as kind of cheating, just saying, well, life was there all along. It was there in the Big yeah. Bang and, you know, the, the hot plasma. And why was it there? We don't know. It just, you know, that's the way things are. It just seems like it's, it's almost like creationism. It's kind of bailing on, on, on all these difficult questions. Uh, by fiat, you say we have solved it. When actually, to my mind, you haven't solved it at all. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that makes a, a lot of sense of your, your recent tweet, actually. You were saying, do, do we say the same about life? And yeah, I, I kind of didn't see where, where you were coming from there. But that, that, that makes a lot more sense now. Um, I mean, I suppose that, I mean, to, just, just to mention free will briefly and then, and then come to life, I suppose. I mean, free will, as I say, it's, it's, it seems to me the difference is it's less obvious that it exists, which is not to say, you know, I'm not saying it obviously doesn't or, but it's, it's, it's easier to make sense of the idea that it might be an illusion as a, which is hard to do in the consciousness case. Also, I have got a, and it, well, it's just about to be published actually, um, with the Aristotelian Society, um, a paper trying out a, a panpsychist version, a, a sort of panagentialism. Uh, so you, maybe you think that's a terrible idea. But because well, it seems to me, I, I'm kind of agnostic about strong free will, what philosophers call libertarian free will. I'm kind of agnostic about it, but it seems to me the biggest problem with it is that most, on most versions of realism about free will, it's just this magical thing that pops up in human beings and, you know, completely different from the rest of nature. So it would be a much more, you know, unified, elegant picture of the world if in some sense there was kind of proto-agency in all of matter. So I, I try and make sense of this idea that particles in some sense have a kind of precursor of, of, of libertarian free will, you know, so I'm, I, I, I sort of, it's a, it's a conditional argument, you know, if there is strong free will, we should take panagentialism seriously. But coming to life, um, um, yeah, I mean, it's not obvious. What is the difficulty there? I'm not sure what a, what a pan vitalist solution would look like. Um, what, what do we, well, just, uh, just, so let me say one more thing before I get to life. I mean, th there is a, this common th worry about panpsychism. Isn't it cheating? You're not really explaining it. You're just saying it's, it's, it's there all along. But, you know, I think there's no oblig, you know, there's plenty of precedent in science for non-reductive explanations. David Chalmers gives the example of Maxwell explaining electromagnetism. He didn't explain electricity and magnetism in terms of the mechanical properties science was already committed to. He postulated new electromagnetic laws and forces and built up on that basis. So I think it's a sort of materialist prejudice to think we're obliged to explain consciousness in, in, in more fundamental terms. I think, you know, what there's very strong constraints on what we need to do. What I just talked about, we need to give an intelligible account of the emergence of human consciousness and one that's empirically adequate. If we can do that, I don't see why we have to explain it in terms of something else. Um, but on life. Yeah. I mean, I guess I've always, I guess I've thought, 
there's, there isn't a problem here as, I mean, this is probably related to what Chalmers has said as well, that, you know, life is just to do with complex behavior. And that looks like the kind of thing physical science is good at explaining um, consciousness, be- complex behavior in terms of mechanisms, whereas explaining consciousness is a totally different explanatory project. It's explaining these subjective qualities we're immediately aware of. And so, you know, I, a lot of people have this idea, look how well science has gone. Physical science, which I, I take to be more specific than science, of course, it's going to explain consciousness, but I see that very different explanatory projects. But it looks like life is in the kind of explanatory project science is good at. But you're right, there, I guess I haven't thought in that context there is this mystery of how it began. But it's, but it's a mystery about how we get, uh, you know, very complex physical systems, well-ordered physical systems, when they didn't exist previously. Um, so that's a big mystery. Um, I, I don't know what what a sort of pan-vitalist solution would... I mean, if there was a kind of... Some, someone asked... A couple of times people asked me, could you have a a pan-moralist story where, you know, why not believe someone challenged me on that? Why not think there's little good and bad? And, then, and my answer to that is, well, tell me the story and I'll see what it looks like. It's hard to see what it would look like and how it would do. And I had a PhD student who started off their PhD trying to make sense of that and just get, thought it doesn't make sense. I don't know what a pan-vitalist story would look like, but I don't have any principal objection to, you know, I think we, we, we shouldn't have, you know, rule things out a priori. Um, As I said, I'm just, I'm suspicious. I'm, I'm so aware of my own biases. Uh, and you know, I, I'm, some of which I, I have become conscious of in part because people point them out to me, uh, and, but uh, others I'm sure of which I'm not aware, some of which I might be manifesting uh, right at this moment. But just what you're describing is so fascinating to me that, that even mor- morality is described as possibly a fundamental property of the universe. I'm not saying, I know that you're, you know, you're not proposing this, but it seems like it's in the same ballpark as, uh, as panpsychism. And again, it's, I understand the motivation. We're, we're really puzzled um, why, how we develop these certain properties and ways of looking at the world, including uh, our sense of some things being, being right and wrong and, and, uh, bad and good. And so to say that in some sense, that's part of the, the fundamental fabric of the universe, I get that that might be satisfying to some people, but that does seem to me to be the grossest kind of anthropomorphism. Let, let me just say, since we're, you know, we're, we don't have a ton of time left. I, I want to, uh, I want to talk about some of the, the implications of your worldview, you veered into the realm of of ethics and even mysticism at the end of your book, and uh, and you talked about how panpsychism you think might be part of a worldview that makes us more, like makes us better, that makes us behave in ways that are more kind toward each other and toward nature. So I wonder if you can explain how that uh, works. And I think you also said that if you want to make this personal, you can. You said that you um, 
you meditate yourself and you aspire to have one of these great unitive mystical experiences where maybe we feel the fundamental consciousness of reality. So just kind of riff on yeah. that. Um, if I could just just say one point on the last discussion that might be somewhat conciliatory, you know, okay. I think it might just come down to a, a question of it's a very difficult question of starting points. You know, what what I don't like about a cer- certain kind of scientism is just this idea that starting points are obvious. Um, maybe they're just you know public observation experiment, but you know, well, what about you know the you know, I think I want to say there are other potential starting points like. Um, the reality of consciousness. Uh, maybe, maybe there are arguments that the reality of value is a starting point, and or free will, perhaps. And it, you know, it's not obvious what the starting points are. But I think the philosophical case we made for that there's a variety of starting points. And um, I sometimes call this liberal naturalism. I talk about this a little bit at the start of my free will paper. Um, and you know, so for me, I, I, I want to say, you know, there are certain starting points, certain data, certain things that we need to account for. And then we want to have the most simple, elegant, parsimonious account of those. So that's my kind of starting point. There are these things we've got to account for and we've got to do it in the most parsimonious way possible. But you might have different starting points, you know, that, well, no, we want to avoid anthropocentrism. And, and it is hard when you get down, we can argue till we get down to brass tacks, but it, it might get to the point where, you know, those starting points are, are difficult to philosophically justify. Um, but yeah, coming to you, the, the well, I, I mean, I always, I always like to emphasize that it, we sh- when we're doing science or philosophy, we, we shouldn't be looking for the view we'd like to be true, but the view most likely to be true. And the first four chapters of my book are building the case for panpsychism as the most likely account of how consciousness fits in. But, you know, it's also interesting and important to explore the implications for the human condition. Um, I mean, I do think, you know, I suppose it's, it's, um, materialism can be quite bleak, you know, where sort of there's the, a mechanistic picture of nature and the cold immensity of an empty space. Whereas, yeah, panpsychism is a world we sort of fit in, uh, we're conscious creatures in a conscious universe. And, you know, I, I suggest it might lead to a, a better relationship with nature. You know, if you think a tree is just a mechanism, then fundamentally you're thinking about it and its value in terms of what it can do for you, either in looking nice or preserving your existence. But if you think a tree is a locus of, you know, is a conscious organism of some kind, or, or be it a very alien one, then it's a, it's a locus of value in its own right. Chopping down a tree is an act of immediate moral significance. So if, you know, if we see these terrible forest fires in Brazil, we're all horrified by them. But if you think that's burning of conscious organisms, I think that adds a, yeah, another horrific moral dimension on the spirituality stuff. So, you know, everyone thinks of so many people think of panpsychism as spiritual. I, I always want to emphasize that it's not essentially bound up with any spiritual convictions. Mm-hmm. The very good panpsychist, David Chalmers, or you can climb to panpsychism, Luke Roloff's, utter secular secular materialists you know that that they don't believe in any transcendent spiritual reality they just believe in feelings and experiences you know and they want to account for them but i suppose if independently you are um you have some spiritual convictions uh maybe you take mystical experiences seriously i think it's it's a it's a worldview that's more consonant with those things so i mean if you think, you know, people have these mystical experiences when it's 
apparent to them that there is this higher form of consciousness underlying all things. If you're a materialist, you, you've just got to think that's a delusion. There's something funny going on in the brain. But if you're a, a panpsychist and you already think the fundamental nature reality is made up of consciousness, it's not too much of a stretch to think what is revealed in the mystical experience is some aspect of the fundamental conscious reality. And, uh, and if you take that route, what I, what I'm, my point I'm making in the book is if, if this is all, the final chapter is very experimental, very tentative. Uh, if you take that route, it's what the interesting implication is you don't have to think of what's revealed in the mystical experience as being supernatural outside of the scientific order. You can just think of it as part of the intrinsic nature of the physical universe. So you can see the spiritual story and the scientific story is sort of two sides of the same coin. But I, I wouldn't say, I do meditate every day. I wouldn't say I meditate. I don't think I quite said I meditate to, to try and have a mystical experience. I, 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 I'm somewhat agnostic on this. You know, I, I, um, I've never had a mystical experience. Um, I, you know, I'm somewhat agnostic on this, but, um, yeah, I, I think I'm, if you think, if you want to talk in Bayesian terms, you know, that if you're a panpsychist, I think, you know, that the prior probability of such things is, is probably higher than it would be if you're a materialist. So I'm more open to that possibility. And I suppose because, you know, I, I do, I do believe in objective facts about value. So I do think in some sense there's, a, there's an objective moral dimension to life and, um, to, to reality, although not a pan moralist. But, um, yeah, so, so, so I suppose I'm more open, but, but, you know, I don't think that's essential component of panpsychism, you know, as a theory of consciousness. Um, let me, uh, so what the irony here is that I'm, I'm an old acid head. And so I have had a lot of mystical experiences. I've, I've, yeah, I've read about you talking about, you know, I wrote a book called rational mysticism. So there is part of me that loves panpsychism and that is very sympathetic toward panpsychism and uh, idealism because of these uh, experiences that I've had, even though there's another part of me uh, that is kind of a like slightly mean spirited, narrow minded uh, skeptic and uh, hardcore materialist. And it's that, that part of me that's, that's sort of given you a, a hard time and raising some of these objections. I, I should just say that, you know, meditation isn't the only route to mystical experiences. I'm sure, you know, you can, you know, take some LSD or take some mushrooms or I don't know if you've tried this, but, uh, but uh, it's one way to get very quickly and pretty reliably uh, into some of the, uh, into some of the States that the, that meditators uh, seek. Uh, So just in the interest of science and in gathering more empirical data for your project, you might, um, you might consider, checking out psychedelics yeah well i just i just did an interview podcast with russell brand two days ago and uh he was pressing me on the same things and um yeah i i um yeah i i mean i i took hallucinogens when i it was a teenager and um i had some pretty crazy experiences i remember i remember um watching the news i, I was regretting not saying this in the russell brand interview watching, watching the news and just thinking how ridiculous it was like that uh they have the dramatic news music on the news i was just thinking it's just so absurd that they're making this game out of you know that's my memory of uh i do think it's in some sense mind expanding you know see you kind of see through your social conditioning in some sense and um but um 
Um, yeah, I mean, I've got kids at the moment, so it's hard to take a weekend <laughs> off and take some ayahuasca. But just, I mean, on, I mean, have you read um, William James's chapter on mysticism in, in the varieties of religious experience? Yeah, um, that that's one of my favorite books. Um, yeah. So I, I like I like the most of that's a sort of psychological study, but I like the philosophical point he makes towards the end, which is I mean the way I like to put this is I think you know all knowledge. This is maybe again a question about the difficulty of starting points. How do we have a rational starting point? Descartes tried to have to have a rational starting point, you know, in what we can not doubt, and he, you know he notoriously failed to do that. Um, but I think all knowledge is grounded in just trusting experiences, you know. How, how do we know our our sensory experiences of veridic are true? You know, they, we might be in the matrix. We might be in a, having a dream, a very vivid dream, and you've just got to trust certain experiences. And so, you know, I think James says at the end of that chapter, if it's okay for us to trust our our sensory experiences and do science, why is it not okay for someone having a mystical experience to trust that? Their the mystical experience, that he thinks, is a sort of double standard there, and I, you know, I think there's something to that. Although maybe if you're a materialist, you do have a reason to doubt it because of your general worldview. It's sort of inconsistent with what science is telling you about the fundamental nature of reality. But if you're a panpsychist, you don't have that reason to doubt the experience you're having. And I can't see a rational reason to say, you know, you you ought to think that it's a delusion, you know. If if there is such a reason, tell me why why I should why I should trust. What, what's the what's the reason to trust my sensory experiences or my memory that doesn't apply to to uh, mystical experiences? So yeah, so I'd say um, yeah, maybe you can trust your mystical experiences, but you, you've had them, I haven't. So well, I'll, I'll just tell you that uh, my uh, my sort of big takeaway, and this is what I you know I wrote my book Rational Mysticism to try to f- figure out once and for all what. Um, what I thought could be um, concluded from mystical experiences. And for me, it's, it's a sense of uh, the improbability of the world. And so in a way, what you were saying, uh, your reaction to this newscast, I, I, I totally recognize that. I, I put that in, in a general category of looking at things when you're high and going, what the fuck? And, and it's behind that reaction is a sense that out of all the possibilities that you have this in front of you and it's infinitely improbable, both your particular experience, your, your own self and what surrounds you and experience at all, any kind of experience. The fact that there is existence at all is um, it's bizarre. It's beyond bizarre. And so, and and the the fact that we're conscious and capable of thinking these thoughts and having this reaction uh, is the most bizarre fact of all. And so, my mystical experiences, such as they are, makes me, and especially I feel it more this way over time, think that when it comes to the mind-body problem, we don't have a clue. Our, all our explanations, uh, materialism, panpsychism, idealism, and everything in between, uh, they are pathetically inadequate to the strangeness of existence, and, and, and especially our own existence. And so that's the view I've been uh, 
I've been. Well, that's really interesting. So some people are led to panpsychism from mystical experiences, but you've been led to reject it from mystical experiences. In part, it, part of me is sympathetic toward it because I've also had these unitive experiences. But when it comes to expressing things, putting them mm. into words, you know, there, William James also talked about mystical experiences as having the quality, the quality of ineffability. You yeah. can't express what you're, what, what, what you, uh, what you see and, uh, and feel. And I bring that back to the realm of science and philosophy and say, yeah, basically we're, we're just shooting in the dark. You know, we so with the, the, those unitive experiences you had, I don't know how you'd quite describe it, but do you think they were delusions or do you think there was something it's real you were getting? At? I, I think they were real, but they were part of a process where at least in this one trip I had the univ- unitive experience started off as really great, blissful and all that. And then it became horrible and terrifying. And I, and I came up with this crazy theology that, that that kind of terror is fundamental to the creation of the universe. Mm. And that if unitive experiences were really blissful, then God wouldn't have any motivation to create anything, let alone right. this horrible, cool. painful, unjust world. But you don't oh, think yeah. that's true. Pardon me? But you don't, you don't think that's true. That's or, or presumably. I, or. I sort of think it's true. And I think it's a ridiculous psychotic delusion at the same time. That's very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't even know if this should stay on the end of the podcast, <laughs> but I should, uh, I should mention that this is, you know, I've got, I've, I've got my own uh, crazy ideas about the mind body problem. Um, but anyway, our, our hour is up. And uh, so um, thanks a lot for coming on. That was, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That was really great. Thank You've you. You've really defended your yeah, position uh, uh, very eloquently. So oh, thank you very much. Thanks for the challenges. And um, yeah, it was interesting getting into a discussion about starting points. And I think that was useful. Yeah. All right. And, and, uh, and good luck. And remember what I said about psychedelics. Okay. What what did you? What, what did, which specific bit? Or? Well, if you're you know you're getting impatient with meditation as a route to right mystical experiences, yeah. you know, just take a, like a gram of mushrooms and right. I have to wait till the kids grow up. But... <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks okay. a lot, John. It was really nice chatting. Have a good weekend.